Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, some Massachusetts voters are feeling overlooked and now are moving toward the right. Is this the end of the Democratic Party's domination in the state? Plus, forward-thinking Massachusetts has been notoriously behind in electing women to the state's top government jobs. But this year's elections could bring a history-making female majority. And Republicans were supposed to have a lock on the midterm elections, but it might not be that easy. Those stories and more as we spend the full hour with the mass politics profs. Joining me remotely, Erin O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Erin. Hello, thanks for having me. Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. Hi, Gerald. Hi, great to be here. And Shannon Jenkins, Political Science Professor at UMass Dartmouth. Welcome back, Shannon. Thanks for having me, Callie. All three are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. I want to start because we're facing a, a upcoming election, September the 6th here in Massachusetts, the primary, with the voting populate and what they're thinking and feeling about. And I'll turn your attention to John Keller's very interesting piece in Boston Magazine about the purpling of Massachusetts, in which he posits that there are a number of folks that he profiles in his piece that one might have thought were automatic blue Democrats who are a little annoyed with the Democratic Party, and some have even changed affiliations, and others are just feeling overlooked and not happy with the party. And so he calls it the purpling. People will know that the mix of red and blue gives you purple. And uh, that's something to note, uh, would you say, Aaron O'Brien? You know, I think the piece anecdotally is onto something that uh, there is a dislike or critique of some elements of the Democratic Party. He focuses on the really woke elements. And I think that's fair. But the piece also ends with the numbers do not suggest uh, that those who are disaffected from the Democratic Party in Massachusetts are going to the GOP. So it's sort of like um, voters are annoyed with their own family, but they're not leaving their family. So and that has a lot to do with the mass GOP going Trumpy. If the mass GOP was uh, continued to move in the Charlie Baker realm, I think we might see those feelings of angst and ambivalence with the Democratic Party. They might translate to changes in um, the voter share and party identification. But right now, I think those who are irritated with the Democratic Party find it too restrictionist, too woke, too unwilling to offer grace. They don't have anywhere to go because the mass GOP isn't offering that either. 
All right, Gerald. So he mentions a couple of specific issues uh, that were, um, you know, connected to some of the people he profiled in his piece. The school closings uh, during COVID, people just thought that was overdone and not thoughtful. Um, and people just sort of ran in one direction. Some folks annoyed with, I just want to mention a couple of them, um, with the uh, former DA for Suffolk County, who uh, Rachel Rollins, who said, uh, ran on a platform of, I am not going to be prosecuting nonviolent, low crimes, but folks are feeling, well, does, what does that mean for me if I feel like I'm I'm suffering that? Um, stuff like uh, affordable housing being kind of, oh, yeah, we should have it, but if we don't, okay, so whatever. And then no gas tax relief. That was a big issue, continues to be for some as gas tax prices went up. So those were a few of the issues that were raised by some of the people in this piece. Resonate with you? Make sense to you about the purpling? If Mr. Keller were writing that today, I think there would also be some griping over uh, a loan repayment scheme that leaves out people who did their, you know, due diligence and worked hard and paid their own way. And so, yes, I, but the, here's the thing that the piece, you know, sort of puts out there that we're moving in a particular direction, but that's really, there really is no evidence for that. The, the, the sort of attitude, the sort of anti-woke attitude has never been absent uh, in the average Massachusetts voter. The average Massachusetts voter is not a progressive and has basically never been a progressive. In fact, even the average Democratic voter probably isn't going to, uh, ha- you know, be good with everything that the progressives in the party are are advocating. So it's it's sort of a interesting story, and their individual stories are interesting and and compelling in their own way. But there's no there there because he said purpling, and that implies that in the, in Massachusetts, voters are going to the polls with a left right kind of mindset. And that's just what doesn't exist uh, measurably in Massachusetts. So Shannon, it is important to know, because people keep getting this wrong, that there are no uh, overwhelmingly uh, registered Democrats uh, in the state. In fact, the majority of people in Massachusetts are unenrolled. Um, Does that lead you to see more purpling than um, Gerald might? Well, so I, I would agree with Gerald, and I, you know, I wrote in my notes and thinking about this, the plural of anecdote is not data, right? Um, this was a bunch of anecdotes to create a story. You could have found a bunch of anecdotes about, you know, progressive voters who are unhappy with the Massachusetts Democratic Party because they're not left enough. So I was, I, I have to say I was disappointed in the story. But I do think there's a story here, and this is where the, my perspective on the South Coast, I think, matters. Um, The South Coast used to be a very solidly Democratic sort of bastion of votes. It's not anymore. And it is, in fact, become very purple. Um, And if you look at Fall River, New Bedford, two major cities down in this region, um, they have become more Republican in national elections. I think the, you know, the important thing is, is when we think about voting too, is it's not just about individual attitudes, but it's about the structure of choices that voters are faced with. Um, and to Gerald and Aaron's points, there, there's not a Republican party for them to go to right now, right? And so um, that's where the struggle is, I think, for the GOP. Um, I do think, particularly in the South Coast, there are some votes they can pick up. I don't think they're pursuing the strategy that will allow them to pick up those votes. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University, and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. Uh, Shannon, I'm going to pick up another piece of this. So there are two things happening that may or may not contribute to purpling, or just I wonder how all of you respond to. One, the Republican Party for all intents and purposes, has said, we're with Trump. That's a very definitive stake in the ground. And that's it. So we're, we're Trumpers over here. That's, that's what we're offering um, in this election, this upcoming election. Then there is um, something that I guess people, I was a little surprised by. After there was, after much strum and drang, many years, uh, passage of a new law to allow undocumented immigrants to apply for driver's licenses, four days after that, um, there was a group that formed uh, creating a committee to repeal the driver's licenses, which they want to get on the November uh, 2022 ballot. And they're doing pretty well. So how do you read this in the context of where uh, the voting population is in Massachusetts? And Shannon, you start. You know, I think one of the key mistakes that non-political scientists or non-political analysts make in, in evaluating voters is to assume that voters are ideologically consistent. Um, And I think there's just a vast array of literature and political science that suggests voters are not ideologically consistent, um, nor do issue positions really sort of drive the way they vote. And so it's entirely consistent to identify with, uh, you know, one party and to hold many positions that don't agree with that, that sort of position. And so I think to a certain extent, right, to Gerald's point, right, Massachusetts Democrats have never been particularly progressive or woke. Um, my husband is a political scientist. We get into debates about this. He's, he's, he will claim Massachusetts is progressive. And I will argue to my, you know, to my death that Massachusetts is democratic. It is not progressive. Um, and so I don't think this is necessarily out of line with the tradition of where Massachusetts voters have been historically. Okay. Uh, before you respond, uh, Gerald, I'm going to play um, a clip from... Minority Senate leader, Senator uh, Bruce Tarr, who um, is worried that the undocumented immigrants who receive these licenses will abuse the opportunity and use it to vote. The license that would be produced as a result of this legislation, if it is to move into law, is not distinguished from any other uh, non-real ID driver's license in the Commonwealth. Hence, we're creating a tremendous opportunity that it could be abused for a purpose that it is not intended for identification. It also creates an incredible, incredible threat uh, to the integrity of the electoral process because uh, the names that would be produced in the automatic voter registration by the Registry of Motor Vehicles are ones that would be produced without any questioning of whether or not someone is a citizen. Now, a lot of what he said has, you know, been rebutted by many who are in support of debunked. Thank you. That's the word Uh, uh, by folks who are uh, supporting the legislation to begin with. But uh, go ahead, Gerald. Well, here's the thing. In 20 years ago, some of us might remember that um, the voters of Massachusetts passed uh, by more than two to one a requirement that English be the language taught in schools. Okay. Uh, my, in my memory, that's the closest thing to, 
in terms of the culture war politics to what we're seeing happen here. It's not surprising to me, it wouldn't surprise me if they got this on the ballot. And further, frankly, it wouldn't be shocking if it was if they were successful for two reasons. One, the, you know, Democrats in Massachusetts, the, the 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 average Democrat, as we have said, is is definitely a centrist to maybe even center right in on many cultural issues. What's happening now is the mass GOP has made this ballot question their whole existence because they kind of have to, right? Uh, their candidate deal is is basically trying to claim that his whole campaign is all about this now ballot question, assuming it gets on there. And here's the thing. What I would predict is that the ballot question, his attempt to get rid of this law will probably outperform his candidacy on election day, which is to say a lot of Democrats will vote for Maura Healey and vote to repeal this uh, immigrant driver's license bill. A, it's not the best test because, of course, uh, you have this hugely popular centrist Republican governor who was against it too, which actually makes it even more likely that you know these sort of culturally conservative Democrats are going to exercise that that sense on the ballot question, but follow suit and and vote for the Democratic candidates up and down the ballot otherwise. Okay, Aaron. Now, I agree wholeheartedly with what Gerald said there, that this, if it's on the ballot, um, will overperform Jeff Deal. And I think it gets into the politics of resentment. As Gerald also said, we, you know, this isn't new. We had the English only, um, you know, ballot question as well. But it says to me, given that this conversation is in the purpling, right, of Massachusetts, that, that for a long time, this politics of resentment had nowhere to go. With the mass GOP's turn towards Trump and with Trump, you know, being omnipresent still, that groups like this feel more vocal. Um, they feel sort of, you know, comfortable out of the closet, if you will. At my own grocery store, walking in, seeing these people um, out gathering signatures was surprising. I was at a local community event volunteering <laughs> and they had a tent. Uh, and I'm sure the fact that I threw um, shade with my eyes really upset them. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I think that does speak to an undercurrent in Massachusetts that's always been there, but uh, feels more comfortable um, being vocal. And I don't think this is the last uh, that we're going to see. And I think, you know, the Mass GOP has decided that having a moderate governor at the top isn't enough. They're not satisfied with this any anymore. So mm -hmm. this to me is a part of a long game uh, of activating those individuals who feel that politics of resentment in Massachusetts and trying to get them to come at least away from the Democrats, if not necessarily towards the GOP. So I don't think this is the last we're going to see of it. And there's also a long history of putting ballot um, measures like this on, you know, it used to be around gay marriage right, to right. activate turnout. Uh, amongst constituencies that might be less apt to turn out in a midterm election. So uh, we've seen this hand before and we're seeing it in Massachusetts. Ballot questions are their only outlet. Left-right politics doesn't happen at the state house. Hmm. So the ballot is where they get to exercise those muscles. Okay. Uh, let's take a listen to Governor Baker, who spoke uh, just about a week ago before the Orange Line shutdown. It's going to be a month, as we know. Oh. <laughs> and uh, here's the governor asking for patience. <laughs> Look, we get the fact that the next 30 days are going to be difficult. 
But if the T can truly deliver five years worth of night and weekend work on the system overall, that's going to be a real benefit, yes, down the road to riders. So I really am not uh, talking to you all about the details of the shutdown and whether or not a five years of work gets done in a month and whether or not the deadline will be met. Many people don't think it will be and it'll be extended. But be that as it may, my question to you, mass politics profs, who benefits politically and who does not uh, from either a good turnout from this or a bad turnout? Um, how do you see it? Let's start with you, Gerald. I mean, how, however, the orange line situation turns out is what yeah, I mean. Well, I mean, yeah. I'm a, remember again, I'm the Western Mass. I politics. know that's why I'm asking I'm you. Care about the orange that line. That is why I'm asking you because you uh, should so be but caring. <laughs> but go ahead. There's no question that I don't think it's a big. Um, I don't think anybody's going to benefit, and I don't think anybody's going to be hurt that much because, of course, he's not on the ballot. Uh, and I don't think that they're going to hold this against the Republican nominee for sure. So, to be honest. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't think that the orange line, unless people need to use it to get to the election, it's broken again, uh, is going to be a turnout, uh, a turnout issue. All right. Erin? Uh, I think it's an albatross. The MBTA is an albatross that somehow no one is responsible for, in part because Charlie Baker is not on the ballot again. So I don't think anyone's going to be held responsible. But I do think if this works, uh, Mayor Michelle Wu is a winner. She has made her political identity on free transportation, um, making transportation more affordable, more efficient. Uh, we know her from you know bringing her strollers up the T with broken escalators and the like. And so she's really made her name there. If this works, huge, huge if, um, I think she could get some political credit for it. She's certainly been more hands-on. Many mayors like to keep the, you know, the T at an arm's length because they know the T usually doesn't work. So I think Michelle Wu could come out a winner. I don't think she'll be held solely responsible for the problems of the T because everyone knows the problems of the T certainly predate her. Um, Shannon, do you think that uh, Maura Healy, presuming she wins, um, and will have to take on the albatross, will be blamed for anything in the future having to do it? Or can she say, not me, not wasn't me, all Baker? Well, you know, it really seemed, the avoidance of the issue really seemed to work for Charlie Baker. I mean, I can remember him campaigning, saying he was going to fix, right, all of these woes. And mm -hmm. he's the Teflon governor, like, not governor. None of this has stuck to him. Um, I also think, you know, this is why politicians are politicians, Right. The timing of this strategically was brilliant for state politicians, right? Because it's too late to get on a ballot uh, on a primary, right? And voters don't tend to have really long memories. So by the next time a state legislative primary rolls around, there will be some other issue that's at the top of the ballot. So um, I think, you know, it is people are very angry. And had it happened, you know, slightly earlier, you might have seen some challengers and Democratic primaries emerging. Um, but because of the timing, I think that no one's going to pay any penalty. Although I do agree with Aaron that um, Michelle Wu could, could potentially benefit if this goes well. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are three of the mass politics profs. Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University, and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. We're talking about the latest political news you need to know. 
Let me switch uh, a little bit uh, to looking at some other races and just get your take. So once again, um, Bill Galvin, who is the Secretary of State um, in charge of elections, is being challenged. He's been challenged before, not successfully. And this time it's with Tanisha Sullivan, um, who is the former head of the local branch of the NAACP, an attorney, um, has a lot of other credentials. And um, he's all over the place on TV with his ad saying he's done a million things to ensure the sanctity of voting in Massachusetts. She doesn't have the money to do that. Um, And some people thought maybe she had a chance, but now they're not so sure uh, because of his name recognition is just so embedded. He's had the job for more than 20 (laughs) years. Um, Let's start with you, Shannon. So I think there's several sort of factors at play here. I mean, one... I don't think most people recognize Bill Galvin's name. I think most people don't know who the Secretary of State is. They have no idea what that person does. Having taught Massachusetts politics for many years, I know none of my students who are voting age know that. Um, That having been said, Bill Galvin has the little I next to his name. He's an incumbent, right? And there's a clear incumbency advantage when there is a lack of information for voters. If If I'm not angry at this person, they're probably doing a good job, so maybe I'll vote for him. On the flip side, right, Tanisha Sullivan has some other indicators on next to her name or that are cued from her name um, that may give her an advantage, uh, depending on who turns out in the Democratic primary. If it is the more progressive element of the party, cues that suggest that she's a woman, that she's a woman of color, um, may give her some advantage. Ultimately, I think Galvin's going to win in part because of his, his monetary advantage, but it depends on who shows up to vote. All right. Um, Gerald, one of the things that I keep looking at and questioning, and we've talked about here, the power of endorsements, um, whether it really matters and whether it matters, period. In this case, Tanisha Sullivan has uh, Joseph Kennedy III's backing, which is pretty important, I would say, in this state. She's got some other ones as well, but I'm picking that one out. Um, how does that help or her if it does? I don't think that uh, endorsements per se are a particularly potent uh, uh, campaign weapon, you know, at a statewide election, let's just say. But I do think that in in this particular cycle, because there's no competitive governor's race, uh, the races underneath the other constitutional officers are in a spot where they've got to do their, they've got to do a harder, it's a harder job for them to get attention for their campaigns. Hmm. If they deploy endorsers and surrogates, more effectively because they know they need it, then maybe their endorsers will have an impact. In other words, if endorsers are also active campaigners, then maybe endorsers can be useful to a secretary of state candidate or an auditor candidate. Uh, but I would say that is only true if it is because they have no attention grabbing headline race for governor. You know, Aaron, I just want to pick up on what Gerald has said there, because I kept thinking to myself, if she had some ground game from you, Joseph (laughs) Kennedy, you know, this might work, right? That's exactly right. (laughs) Indeed. And and also, Galvin has a ground game. Yes. When you've been doing this job for 30 years, whatever it is. Um, he knows how to run elections and get people to turn out, as both my colleagues said, in a race that is not at the top of the brain of most voters. He can get people out and you build up a lot of favors over 25 years. And I'm not saying anything nefarious at all, but just, you know, I was talking um, to Adam Riley, one of your colleagues, mm-hmm. and and GBH has reported, you know, like, 
going to some of these campaign rallies and Galvin's announced by, you know, when we needed Galvin, Galvin was here. He helped us get some money to run a proper census. Those kind of things matter. And if you've built that up for 25 years, you call those favors in when it's time to vote. And to your point, Callie, he has a ground game. I thought the race against Josh Jacob, the last um, right. you know cycle, I thought it would be tight. Galvin smoked him. <laughs> but I think the power of incumbency is always there. And if you're Bill Galvin, it's like quadrupled. <laughs> um, and what's striking to me is, you know, uh, Zakem pushed him saying, you're not progressive enough that mm -hmm. Massachusetts was middle of the pack in terms of voter access. And Galvin, when pushed from the left and then with COVID, did change. So I think Tanisha Sullivan's um, campaign rhetoric that he's not far enough left on voter access was a better angle um, four years ago than it is now. You know, I just add this, though. I kept thinking about Ayanna Presley's race against Michael mm -hmm. Capuano. Was this, you know, you could be considered a similar situation. I mean, Michael Capuano was no shrinking violet. He had a lot of support, a lot of support. And she just made that ground game just come together with the endorsements. And I just feel like the people who are supporting uh, Tanisha Sullivan um, with their endorsements have not uh, come forward with the same level of, I don't know, energy as if there's- I agree. And I also think, you know, Tanisha's trying to run statewide as a first time candidate. That's a lot harder than, you know, Ayanna Presley had amazing name recognition. The congressional district she was running in was part of what she covered as a Boston city councilor. So yes, she was wildly talented at getting um, GOTV to work for her, but she'd ran in elements of that district before. So I think that that's another difference that makes um, the Hill, Tanisha Sullivan has to climb more difficult as a first-time candidate. Okay, let me move to another race. Um, Gerald, um, a GOP super PAC has formed against Democratic candidate Kim Driscoll, who's running for um, lieutenant governor. I'm, I'm puzzled by this. Explain to me yeah, what's she, going on. <laughs> well, she also has, uh, out in Western Mass, there are some, uh, some uh, wealthy uh, Republican donors who uh, are not particularly pleased with our state senator, who was one of her opponents. Uh, and they are holding a fundraiser for her as well. So there's no question that uh, some folks that are not Democrats have, for some reason, decided they want to invest in her candidacy. Now, the question is, are they investing in her for some reason that they think she would be useful to them? Or are they trying to prevent Eric Lesser's climb up the, uh, up the ladder? Um, so why did it happen? Well, it happened because the guy that they apparently don't like, the state senator, my state senator, Eric Lesser, in fact, has uh, a tremendous network uh, for fundraising. Mm. And but for the super PAC would have uh, much, much more money to spend and would be spending much, much more money than Kim Driscoll would. So, you know, there's no question that this money could actually change the outcome of this race if it is spent properly. I am out in Western Mass. I don't see all of the ad buys, but- Oh my I God, it's every moment. Yeah, so I've, <laughs> I'm told that they've already made very substantial six-figure ad buys. And so to be honest with you, I think that is a huge asset for Kim Driscoll in this election. And unfortunately for Eric Lesser, I don't think the issue of she's being supported by Republicans is gonna push a lot of people as far as he might like it to. It's almost like a process issue and voters just don't get 
too angry or excited about process issues. Well, Shannon, I was questioning that because the minute I saw the, that, I was like, huh? What? Do you, what? <laughs> it, it just made you suspicious. I mean, you know, this is Massachusetts after all. We've discussed this. And purple or not, it, it, it was a little startling. So uh, do you agree with Gerald? I guess I'm, you know, I'm just sort of thinking about, right, like you saying, oh, you, you've seen all these ads and, you know, maybe I'm not quite as far out as, you know, as Gerald, but I'm in the Boston, you know, market and I'll be honest, I haven't seen any of the ads. Really? I don't, I don't, I, I don't watch TV. Ah, gotcha. I watch Netflix. I watch Hulu. Mm. I watch whatever. And, you know, I'm not particularly young. So I think like people <laughs> my age and younger You're young. are in the same boat. So one, right. Who's watching those ads okay. i don't know me Two, i've seen them but go ahead <laughs> right but but also who else, i mean you know this is the the real push for mail-in voting and yep. early voting True. like who who are these ads targeting now you're probably targeting older voters right who are more likely to watch network tv but then again older voters are more likely to vote by mail and vote early so it's it's kind of an odd strategy and i'm just you know i i don't know what impact it will have there's so many different variables here to consider that i i can't really make this one out hmm. all right who did i talk to aaron did you weigh in me yes. uh, yeah yeah I, I think listen i think shannon's right that like we don't know how what way this will cut one way it might cut and this is simply a hypothesis is that you know more healy is perceived by many as quite progressive uh, Massachusetts has a taste for moderate Republicans, and they're not offered that at the gubernatorial level. Um, and if Kim Driscoll has some Republican backing that she's keeping at arm's length, well, you know, there's your Charlie Baker light. But again, that's just a hypothesis. Right, right. All right. I want to get right. a quick uh, take from each of you about the possibility, because the voters have the last word and they have yet to weigh in, that there could be an historic nearly all-woman sweep of the top uh, local government offices in Massachusetts, which would bring us from the Dark Ages or the House of Dragons or whatever they're running on, the Game of Thrones prequel, <laughs> to to the forefront, uh, potentially. Erin, uh, I'll start with you. I know this is part of your hobby horse. Yes, and in a shocking turn of events, I am for it. <laughs> I mean, Massachusetts is um, 27th in the uh, amongst the 50 states for electing women, and we're last in New England. Um, this election could be a real change. Not, I, it's not going to happen in the legislature, but in terms of the governor, lieutenant governor, we could really see massive changes that are long overdue. Uh, in Massachusetts, I was talking to a, a friend and colleague who's you know, run for office before, and she was saying, oh, I, I, you know, I sort of wish the gubernatorial race, I wish uh, women had to fight for it a bit more. I wish it was more of a contested election. I was like, I don't. <laughs> um, you know, Massachusetts is notoriously hard to see women in that top spot. I think um, seeing Maura Healy win decisively would make the victory for uh, women in politics all the more sweet. Shannon? Yeah, I mean, like Erin, I'm excited about this, right? Um, you know, the research about, you know, having women in office is clear. Descriptive representation matters. Um, it matters for how our government functions. It matters for how our people feel about government. So this is a big deal. Right. And, you know, I'm, it was pretty exciting to me. I'm geeking out. I'm a little nerdy, right, <laughs> to get my 
to get a flyer that showed, you know, endorsements for the top races in the state. And it was all women. And even my husband, he's also a political scientist. So he's a little nerdy. We were both like so excited to see that flyer. It was, it's new and exciting. And so it's a big deal. I agree with Aaron. It's a really big deal. Okay. And finally, Gerald. <laughs> Obviously it's a, it's a real possibility, uh, but hearkening back to the notion that, you know, it really matters which Democrats come to the primaries. Uh, and if you accept the proposition that the average Democrat in general, which is not necessarily the average primary voter, although in Massachusetts it is more so that, uh, is not very progressive, uh, it could that could actually make it a little harder. In other words, he, right here in bright blue Massachusetts, sexism is still a very, very real thing. Uh, and for some of the female candidates, that also includes racism and homophobia. And so there, there, sadly, there is still uh, plenty of reason to suspect that this achievement in terms of descriptive representation might not come to pass. So you're David Downer is what you're saying. I, I'm, the David Downer, yeah. I'm the David, David Downer. And, but I, I mean, obviously, it would, it would be a, a striking and uh, positive, generally positive thing. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to leave it on that down note for this second while we go into a break. Coming up, it's more insight and analysis from the Mass Politics Profs. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State, Sharon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. And let's pick up right where we left off. I do want to address this uh, one, it seems kind of important, uh, local issue before we move on to national. Um, the State House and the Massachusetts tax rebate. So... What's going on there, Shannon? Um, they left without addressing this. Um, it's a big brouhaha. Explain. Yeah. So, you know, there's a somewhat obscure law from, I think, 1986 that says if state revenues exceed a certain amount, um, that there will be, uh, you know, tax relief that will be refunded to the taxpayers. The state legislature, you know, I don't know whether they were doing their job or not here. This is a matter of debate between them and the governor's office. Um, kind of was taken aback when at the last minute the governor's office told them, yeah, this is going to kick in. Um, and we're going to have to, you know, refund money to, to state residents. It's not that the state legislature was opposed to this, um, but they had their own plan for tax relief that was part of a larger economic development bill. And so I also don't want to lose sight of, right, that the state legislature's plan to give tax relief um, is, is sitting in conference committee now because this other plan is probably going to be moving forward. But in that economic development bill was a whole host of other measures um, related to housing production, child care, health care. Um, and that's all bottled up now in the state legislature because of this sort of last minute announcement. Um, they need time to figure out whether or not we have enough money to do both the economic development bill as they proposed and um, meet the requirements of this older state law. And so 
there's lots of things that are sort of people thought were done deals in the economic okay. development bill that are no longer done deals. Um, and it, it's kind of a big deal. So, um, you know, for instance, affordable housing, mm-hmm. right? Um, lots of money for affordable housing in that bill that's not moving forward right now. Um, we should point out that um, many, many people are very unhappy that issues like this, which obviously have a long reach in many directions, um, don't seem to inspire the legislature to come back off of their very long <laughs> break, Aaron O'Brien. <laughs> Uh, facts. Uh, <laughs> my first reaction is I'm glad Shannon is my colleague and studies the state legislature because that was the best explanation I've heard of this. I've been reading a lot and I wasn't quite sure on all of it. So thanks to my colleague. Um, and secondly, Callie, I really agree with you that um, a lot of individuals say, hey, hey, wait a second, these are really big issues. Like Shannon said, affordable housing, um, you know, other environmental stuff is all in this and they're, they're, they're sitting on it. They're not coming back. Another point I would make is that, as I understand it, if um, you know the 1986 law kicks in, uh, as Baker says it's going to, it would be a seven percent return based on your 2021 taxes. Whereas the state legislature was going to do a lot of other policy and offer basically everyone $250. So the difference between you know a, a flat not it's not a flat tax but a, a uniform give back versus a seven percent gradated would mean that higher income individuals were would get more back, and as I understand it, if you report you know if you pay zero in income tax, um, that would mean you would get nothing. So there, are, there not only is there big differences in terms of how robust the policy would be, but it also makes a difference in terms of uh, how much people are getting back in Massachusetts and whether it's gradated um, towards top income earners. I just want to correct one thing that Erin said, and this may not be a popular position among this crew, but I do want to give the legislature some relief here because they're a little bit in a jam. Under joint rules, there, there's the, the second year of the session, which is this year, it ends formal sessions on, end on July 31st. Um, they could, in informal session, decide to come back into formal session, that would require them to change the rules. But one legislator objecting means they can't do that. Um, so they literally can't come back into formal uh, session unless every single one of them agrees to. Well, that's True. to me. At do your job. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's, Callie, I agree. Most voters are like, if Shannon's 100% correct, I believe her on the details, and most voters don't care. Get well, back the, and do your job however right? you need to do it. And maybe that's unfair, but that's the way voters feel. Go well, ahead, here's Joe. the thing. What you want to look at here, and that's an, a very important procedural fact that we just heard, but when you, I don't know about you, but when I hear the candidates for statewide office, Democrats for statewide office, when they are asked the question about this 86 law, which remember passed by the voters at the ballot, not, it wasn't a legislatively passed, uh, they are all falling all over themselves to say, we support what the voters want and the, we, the, that's the law and we support the law. So the point is that most voters may not even want them to, they certainly don't want them to tinker with that law. They may want them to go in and give them more, uh, but they certainly don't want them to, to tinker with it. So, you know, it's important to note that, number one, it was a ballot initiative, or actually it might have even been a legislative referred ballot initiative, which means that it had support in the legislature at the time. 
And there is a desperate need to avoid ever going out against, you know, about something that was passed by the voters. Okay. You know, I, I'm just saying what I said. All right. I'm moving on to, <laughs> to national politics. And I want to frame everything uh, right now under the... Um, the midterms and the and the sentiment about the midterms, the analysis about the midterms was that uh, Republicans, this was a lock for Republicans. Not so much now. So let me begin this way. This is uh, on MSNBC's Morning Joe, uh, Monday the 22nd, talking about the midterms and potential turning of the tide. Republicans have a slight two-point edge when it comes to which party voters want to control Congress, though that's in the margin of error, a tie game there. But Democrats have significantly closed the enthusiasm gap. 68% of Republicans express a high level of interest in the upcoming election versus 66% for Democrats in May. That gap was eight points. Now, before you comment, I want to pick out two issues that seem to be propelling some of that enthusiasm by uh, Democrats. Uh, one of them now, very recent, uh, President Biden um, announcing that he uh, is implementing his long-promised loan forgiveness plan. Here he is announcing what that means. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 and outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. Third thing, we're fixing the student loan program system itself. We've talked about this at length. This is really important. We're proposing to make what's called an income-driven repayment plan simple and fair. All right. So I want to get, again, we've, we've heard the details of the loan forgiveness uh, plan. I want your take on the impact politically and whether or not you see this as a motivator at the polls. I'll start with you, Gerald. Well, that's a really good question. I would say that the, the president seems to have had some success some legislative success, and this, of course, is an executive order, but he's on a bit of a, a roll, and his his overall shtick has always been, you know, I'm the I'm the slow and calm and collected adult, and and I just think that you know the narrative that the Democrats are going to get wiped out has been it's played and played and played, and the narrative that well maybe not is a pretty it's a good media hook, and there's some substance about in terms of legislative victory, and now this announcement about the the loan forgiveness. Now, to, specifically on the loan forgiveness, um, there, I, there are some folks that are very smart, probably smarter than me, who are looking at that and saying, oh no, they've handed uh, the a great cultural backlash issue to the Republicans who will say, you know, all these darn college educated people, or they're getting money, why don't I get money for my mortgage or why don't I get in other words there's a lot of class culture class resentment that the republicans are and will use this to play and some people are arguing that that was a you know uh, some people have called it an unforced error now i happen to believe that it was a useful thing for mobilization because it is a tangible get a tangible victory for the progressive base of the Democratic Party. And I think that's important for Biden, who very much needs to energize a progressive base if he, if uh, you know, to, to get them to turn out. Okay, um, Shannon, so Biden's plan, is that a motivator, loan forgiveness plan, is that a motivator to get people to the polls as part of this perhaps flip uh, in the ways that Republicans were not expecting? 
you know, I do think that that um, helps to mobilize younger voters. And there's some there's some evidence that perhaps, you know, the Dobbs decision um, may mobilize progressive voters. Um, but, you know, I think the important thing to remember is that, you know, a national generic ballot is somewhat meaningless because this is a district by district race. And the Republicans have had a great deal of success, you know, starting with the 90s redistricting in 2000, 2010, in, in gerrymandering a lot of these House districts. So, you know, I've seen some analysis that suggests, you know, absent gerrymandering, the Democrats would likely retain the House. But gerrymandering is not absent, it's here. And so um, the Democrats really have to sort of overperform in order to, um, to win seats because of the gerrymandering of those seats. So um, I think these wins help the Democratic Party. I'm not sure they are enough, or I should say wins on student loans and loss on abortion right. um, help the Democrats in terms of mobilization and turnout, but I'm, I'm not so sure that it is sufficient to overcome the really real effects of gerrymandering in the states. All right, Erin. On student loans specifically, I think the effect will be determined by politics, meaning that one, uh, listen, individuals are, a lot of individuals are about to get a very positive resource uh, feedback effect. Their loans are going to go down by 20, 10 or 20 grand on top of, you know, some other really good policies about compounding interest rate and, and, and other elements there. So that is a resource effect. People are going to have more money in their pockets and they're going to see that effect. So I think that is potentially mobilizing. I worry, you know, we're only, you know, X number of hours out from the announcement that a lot of Democrats have already um, found every critique they can think of. You right. know, it's not total forgiveness um, or, you know, it should be higher than $125,000. It should be lower. Um, it doesn't do enough on wealth inequality. I happen to think those critiques are incorrect. But more importantly, I think a lot of Democrats don't know what to do with a win. It's like they're trying to seek defeat in a real win that's going to help a lot of individuals. So I think it all it all that there's going to be a framing contest between now and November about what this policy means. And I think the Democratic Party needs to get in there and talk about how positive this is and how positive this is for getting at things like the wealth gap, racial wealth inequality, you know, and the ways in which this is going to help a lot of individuals rather than give into you know, the politics of resentment and, you know, perverse incentives that the right has already mobilized. So it really depends on um, the political contest between now and then. And I think that's a shame because this is a huge win for a lot of individuals, excuse me, regardless of their partisanship. You know, you're getting this break, you're getting money in your pocket and you're getting relief from government. When is that not a good thing? And why wouldn't that motivate in the midterm contest? But I'm just not convinced that Democrats can make that case effectively. The the uh, race in New York with uh, uh, Pat Ryan, Democrat Pat Ryan, who beat Republican Mark Molinaro in New York's 19th district. And again, Shannon, this is back to your district by district. His, his focus point was about uh, Roe being overturned and those rights being removed. I want to couple that with the fact that Planned Parenthood is planning to spend $50 million on the midterm elections and ask you if that 
specifically, that issue specifically is now uh, a different kind of driver for Democrats. Early on, two polls, one local and one national, said no. This was not a factor for people to go to the polls, but now seems to be different. What do you say, Shannon? You know, I, I do think there's there's definitely emerging evidence that this this may be driving turnout, you know, both in terms of the, the Kansas referendum. And then I saw, you know, some political scientists tweeting about uh, registration data. And there's some evidence across um, maybe about 10 states that in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, um, a lot more women were registering to vote than were men. Um, it's kind of come back down to normal, um, you know, in terms of the, the gender balance in, in registration for voting. But I do think that um, should the Democrats decide to focus on this, um, there is some evidence that it is perhaps a winning strategy for them. Erin? Mm. Um, uh, you know, I, I agree with much of that. I think it is hard. We're doing apples and oranges a bit when we say, obviously, it was incredibly motivating for turnout in Kansas. Well, they were voting on abortion right. and nothing else. Right. <laughs> uh, or, or, and or largely nothing else versus, you know, the midterms. Abortion will be one key consideration driving people to the polls, but in the vast majority of states and districts, you're voting, um, you're selecting between individuals who have stances on abortion versus voting on the issue itself. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think there is a mobilizing effect, but it's not as uh, clean and dramatic as we saw in Kansas. Do you agree, Gerald? Yeah, well, I basically do agree, although I, I would characterize the, the, the lion's share of the mobilizing effect as organizational. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Um, if you're just tuning in, I am here with the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University, and Sharon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. And we're talking about the latest political news you need to know. And this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm Callie Crossley. Um, I want to move on to something else that I've uh, noticed, and I think it's interesting. The numbers of GOP women uh, growing in um, Congress, you know, uh, they've had a struggle a long way in that party, and it seems like there's been a kind of breakthrough. Um, I'm going to go to you first on this, Shannon, but first I want to listen, I want everybody to listen to this uh, montage of uh Marjorie Taylor Greene speaking at this year's CPAC. Susan Collins assuring CBS that Brent Kavanaugh told her he wouldn't vote against Roe and Lauren Boebert railing against Biden and Harris after the raid on Mar-a-Lago. But when I said that I'm a Christian nationalist, I have nothing to be ashamed of because that's what most Americans are. We're proud of our faith. What Judge Kavanaugh told me, and he's the first Supreme Court nominee that I've interviewed out of six who has told me this, is that he views precedent not just as a legal doctrine, but as rooted in our Constitution. Look what has happened. Biden has weaponized the DOJ. Biden and Pelosi are currently weaponizing the IRS with 87,000 new armed IRS agents that are readily, readily available to use deadly force. If the DOJ and the FBI can target President Trump and chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, Scott Perry, they can target any American. Now, of course, the most of the women we heard here are GOP women we heard here are big Trump supporters. But my point is larger than that, Shannon, is that there seems to be a growth in the numbers and there are a lot of candidates um, on the boards coming up for the midterms and beyond. So what's your take on that? You know, I think that's right. Um, I do first want to correct 
right? The 87,000 IRS agents will <laughs> oh, be yes. armed. Oh, yes. Right? And I think it's important to correct yeah. misinformation when we air it. Um, but I do think, you know, um, a lot of people, you know, have seen that this is a path to victory in the Republican Party. Um, if you look at what happened to Liz Cheney, right, that was not a path to victory for her. And so if you're an ambitious person who wants to, you know, sort of be elected to Congress or to do that sort of work, those are the positions that you have to take. And so those are the sorts of candidates that we are seeing emerge. And so um, I'm not particularly surprised um, by the emergence of you know, these, these women uh, GOP candidates and officials who do this because it's a path to victory in today's GOP. All right, Gerald. Well, it is a path to victory for most uh, Republicans. Obviously, Senator Collins is in a slightly different spot. In other words, once again, it depends on where you're running, if you're a member of Congress, right? The, when you talk to, when you hear the, the Boberts of the world, clearly in those districts, this is, you know, SOP. But there are swing districts, right? And we have a closely divided House of Representatives. So, you know, the, the, as we know, the Democrats have actually invested in some of these far right Trump candidates, assuming that that will actually help the Democratic nominees in the fall. So it's a it's important to keep to, to continuously remind ourselves that congressional elections are local elections. Uh, that's standard operating procedure in case somebody mixed up that last letter. I also, I, I also can't help but, uh, you know, follow from Gerald's comment to say, you know what they say about assuming. Yes. Right? yes. I know we can't say the, all the whole phrase on, on, on the radio, but I, I wonder about that. Well, there you there you go. Aaron. You know, uh, Republican women in Congress experienced um, dramatic losses in 2018. Uh, whereas Democratic women saw real gains and the party really invested in electing more women because it was kind of embarrassing on the Republican side. They lost over half of uh, the women that had been serving. And then Republican women made major gains in 2020. And a lot of them, not all of them, sounded like the clips you talked about. Women are, uh, any time they run, um, Democratic side or Republican side, are perceived as more liberal than they really are. And depending on the primary, that can help or hurt. Um, so I think what you've seen is Republican women's numbers have gone up in Congress, and a lot, though not all, are running in lockstep, as sort of Gerald uh, indicated, with Trump elements of the party. So we know in political science that, you know, party matters first and then party and re-election matter the most. And then some of these other demographic uh, characteristics. So I think we're seeing thus far the rise and fall of congressional Republican women has a lot to do with to what degree they're willing to embrace Donald Trump, though there are exceptions to that general rule. OK, and finally, I just want your quick take on this new party third party. Uh, put, oh boy, we've already got laughter. Uh, That's my take. <laughs> uh, called Forward, um, be co-chaired initially by former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang and Christine Todd Whitman, the former Republican governor of New Jersey. So react, please. Whoever laughs, you start. It was me. Okay. It was Aaron. I laughed too. <laughs> okay, so, so that's telling, right? Um, Kelly, I've had the pleasure of knowing you for, gosh, 15 years now, and you always bring up these third parties, and I'm always like, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and I stand by that. I mean, A, they don't even have policy positions. 
B, you know, Andrew Yang can't find an election. Every election he runs, he loses. No one's going forward with him. Um, and so, you know, third parties in American politics, to be more serious, just historically do not work um, for, you know, infrastructure reasons. They tend to be co-opted and brought in by the other parties. But um, th there is no there there is my take on this. Okay, so yeah. Gerald, you say not forward. Well, I obviously agree with that. <laughs> okay. and, uh, the problem is that the assumption that these folks come in with is everybody is so sick and tired of partisanship. So let's have a nonpartisan party. Well, that's just, that's silly, really, because what we know is that the people who claim they hate both parties, the people in the middle, well, it turns out that they're really just a microcosm of the same sort of, you know, uh, disagreements. So the idea that being cynical about American politics is sufficient to mobilize and field and succeed in putting a third party into a, a, a system that is essentially rigged to only have two is naive. Okay. Last word, Shannon. So I'll just elaborate a little bit on what Aaron said. And, you know, I agree with my colleagues. I also laughed at this assertion. But on the rare occasions when third parties have emerged and successfully taken their place in the American electoral system is because they have been laser focused on a single issue, generally speaking. And so the fact that the forward party is not taking positions. I mean, I think Andrew Yang was asked about abortion and he's like, we're going to wait and see. How do you wait and see on abortion, right, for Pete's sake? Um, it has no place to go. There will be no traction with the forward party. All right. Well, so we're going to leave it there because we're not going forward with the forward party, apparently. <laughs> and I want to thank Bear buzz kills. <laughs> you are. Uh -huh. I want to thank all of you for joining me. <laughs> Thanks, thank you Aaron. for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Aaron O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Gerald Duquette is an associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. He and Aaron are co-editors of the book Massachusetts Exceptionalism, Fact or Fiction. And Shannon Jenkins is a political science professor at UMass Dartmouth. You can read more of their analysis on their blog, masspoliticsprofs.org. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Kelly Wessinger and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.